This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong-Whaley. In this episode, I talk with Bessie Brillian Mahanja about her new book, Radical Utu, Ideas and Ideals of Wangari Mathai. Dr. Mahanja is professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies and African, African-American, and diaspora studies in the Department of English at James Madison University. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for taking this time to have a conversation with me, Bessie. Um, I wonder if you can start by telling us why you chose to write about Wangari Muta Matai. Um, so thank you for having me. And, you know, it's my pleasure because I can't get enough of talking about Wangari Matai. So, and it was nice to figure out moments ago that you have a connection to her too. So this should be an interesting conversation. Um, but I guess the best way to say it is I love Matai. I love Wangari Matai. And, and I just don't think she has gotten the recognition she deserves. Um and it's not just her, it's this continuous erasure of African thinkers. And there's some we can keep moving and forget about. And then there's some we have to stop and say, no, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. This person needs to be written in the history and written in the history accurately. So Madai, when people talk about them, they, about Madai, they focus on the Greenbelt movement, great stuff. They focus on the Nobel Peace Prize, great prize as well. Um, but that then limits her to this identity of, as people often refer to her, the activist. Great stuff also, no denying that. But I also think there's another bit connected to the erasure of African thinkers that I would like to, that drew me into this space, which was I consider her, and many people do, as one of the greatest thinkers, greatest critical thinkers, not just of our time, our times, but of all time, and and. It's not on one subject like most people are. It's on a multiplicity of subjects. I just cover for in this book, which is women's empowerment, liberation, environmentalism, democratic spaces, and global governance. But uh, she had so much to say about so many things. And for me, it was important that a voice like that, that, like that gets recorded into history. Um, now I'm gonna give my PhD advisor some credit for this. Because I remember coming in to do work, and if I had listened to her, when she heard about my passion for grandmother, she said to me in 2004, she said, well, why isn't that the focus of your dissertation work and all your research work? But, you know, I thought I knew better, so I went on to other things. <laughs> Now, when we're young and we think we're all that, <laughs> I went on to other things, and then, uh, and I couldn't let her go. And so I reached a point where I had been collecting all this material for years on her, and finally I was like, okay, this is what I need to do, and um, that's where I went with it. So for our listeners who haven't encountered the concepts before, can you explain uh, uh, Ubuntu, which is described by Desmond Tutu as the ancient spirituality of humanity, oneness with our creator, the other, and nature, and also Mathai's radical Utu, the deeper linkage between our humanness and the environment? Okay, so first, I'm just, just because you brought up Tutu, um, <laughs> I'm going to say one of the most favorite things he says in his definition, I love him too. <laughs> one of the most interesting things he says in his definition of, you should be asking Bessie, who don't you love? <laughs> one of the great things he says about Ubuntu is that um, it captures for me when he when he talks about we being created for interdependence and our humanity depending on other humans. Um, there's a statement he makes in one of his videos where he says that is so critical to our humanity and being human. That idea of creating relationships and interacting with other humans, that the, so that the completely self-sufficient person is in fact subhuman the person who can discount all other humans and decide they can do this on their own is in fact subhuman. Now, when grandmother, I really often went back to the idea of what 
it means to be human in doing the work that we do, in doing scholarship that we do. Just what does it mean to be human? So Ubuntu is a philosophy that's in just about every African culture by different names. So if you're thinking about, uh, um, I, I, I would probably be more um, bold in saying these names if I didn't think I would murder them from other cultures, but there are different names for it in different cultures. Ubuntu in Swahili is Utu. So a person in Swahili is called Mutu. Utu is the essence of being human the essence of being human, what it means to be human. And one of the things that I felt um, that could not be captured in English was the concept of Ubuntu, or as correctly said, Ubuntu and Utu. In my culture, it's Ubuntu. Um, it's the fact that there are certain concepts we can't capture in English, and those of us who do decolonial studies then have to make the choice to be disruptive and epistemically um, disobedient and use the words that should be used. And in this case, it was Utu. And in looking at Madai's work, what emerged was her focus on the location, whether it was dealing with the environment or dealing with, uh, uh, with other humans or democracy or whatever it was, it always started off in the space of humanness, humanity, the person personhood. And so I thought about the, uh, so I thought I would use the word Utu from Swahili for that. And then there's the fact that she's not just doing humanness or personhood or humanity. She's doing radical living, radical hum being humane in a radical way. And so that's where I fashioned the idea of radical Utu. So radical Utu is something I came up with to describe what I thought captured who she was, her philosophies, her ideas, her ideals were radically Utu-based. And that's where the word came from, um, of radical Utu. Um, it was something else, and then it grew into the space of radical Utu. And I loved it when I was done with it, so I went with it. <laughs> I, w I wonder what made the Utu radical? Ha Utu? Yes. Ha Utu, what makes it radical? The simple answer was, um, and you know, nobody's ever asked me that question. So let me make sure that I'm doing this the right way. <laughs> um, what made her Utu radical is that she refuses to let her the concept of being humane um, or being human, live, she refuses to let it be a noun, I would say. Uh, her Utu performs, her Utu enacts. Now, that was the reality in most African cultures, certainly, that uh, you had to, you lived a certain way, and thus you were seen as being, uh, as having Utu. Um, even though Utu is assured as you were born, but you actually have to, to perform it. And Madai performed it, not just publicly, but in an extreme way, in ways that risked her own life often, in ways that rescued other people's lives. Uh, when you think about what she gave up, including at some points coming close to giving up her own life, um, that's what makes her radical. It's not a concept she believes and talks about. It is a verb for her that she lived on a day-to-day -day basis and that caused her a lot to do that. And all her work, most of her work, as I have gone through it, because what I had to do is read just about everything written by her uh, or everything she said, watch that, and then started to tease out little things that came together and connect them in this web of ideas starts to grow and you cannot look at that web of connecting ways of being and living and doing knowledge or being and living and doing life and not see a radical human being radically living out humanity or being human or being a person so um i, I hope that answers the yes, question no, it's it's it also reminds me that how much we see in social movements 
you know, that willingness to sacrifice. And, and the, the question I think that we're even facing today um, is, you know, and, and questions that I often ask students is, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? Um, yes. And, and, and she was willing to sacrifice it all. <laughs> it all. And also when you think about Ubuntu or Utu, it's, I'm trying to find the right words for it. Um, it's, um, it's, it's not just a radicality about, or a philosophy about your own humanity. It is about everybody mm-hmm. else. So th- the idea of Ubuntu is that you need not some humans or one human, you need every last human being on the planet for your own humanity to be affirmed. That's what I am because we are means that you don't need Kara and you don't need the people at JMU or in your private private community and how you treat them for your humanity to be affirmed. You need every last human being on the planet for your humanity to be affirmed. Thus, you cannot treat even just one human being in the world inhumanely without putting your own humanity into question, without putting your own Utu in question. The minute you treat a single human being poorly or you dehumanize one other human being on this planet, your own humanity comes into question, which is why we will talk about people acting like animals in domestic violence situations or people who are racist or people who are um, sexist being acting inhumanely. Thus, the minute you treat one other human being on this planet inhumanely or dehumanize them, you yourself become dehumanized. And so you need every last human being on the planet for your own humanity to be affirmed. I am because we are. So you write about Mathai's tridimensional approach to understanding the environment as applying a big picture perspective, thinking universally, and the long view perspective, considering the environment over time, working in tandem with a consideration for the small and the local. Can you tell us how she came to this thinking and how we can apply her approach to addressing environmental and social justice in whatever local context we are situated? Ooh, I wish uh, I wish I had the answers for this latter part of the question, <laughs> uh, but I'll try. Um, so I, uh, um, I'm going to start off again with Utu, uh, right for Utu, because Mathai, what she does is sort of uh, find expand our understandings of being humane and humanness to. Um, and create an environmental dimension to it, to the beingness of the human, uh, because human humans um, humans did not exist alone alone in 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 the world, and so that the person who truly was radically humane, or the person who was a celebrator or an embrace somebody who embraced Utu or Ubuntu would respect the environment because they have a responsibility to that environment for the rest of humanity. Thus, the environment, um, she actually said it in, in, in some of her work where she talks about the environment is not ours, that it is handed to us to, to protect and use and pass on to the generations that follow. And so, oops, I'm That's sorry okay. about that. <laughs> Okay. I'm all set. Okay. So, as um, God, I hope I can remember what I said before. But um, but so Madai um, expands our understanding um, of humanity and Utu to not just be limited to the human subject, but to touch other parts of the ecosystem we live ecosystems we live in, and really the globe. And if, as a person, you respect yourself and you respect the humans in your environment and you understand that you need every other human being on the planet, then you know that you understand your responsibility to preserve this environment 
for every other human being present now, for the animals and everything, but also for humans to follow in lives coming after us. Um, one of the quotes that I like that she makes, um, and there's so many of them, um, but one that she makes um, somewhere, and I, I hope I get it right, is when she says that our humanity is connected to the environment. And so in degrading the environment, we degrade ourselves and all humankind. And so our humanity, in that, in that, if that happens, then our humanity receives damage physically, psychologically, spiritually. But it's not just us, because if my humanity is damaged and I am going to parent the next generation, then I damage them. So I'm not just damaging the, the environment for them. I'm also actually damaging them and the opportunities to enjoy the, the world. And so out of that space, I understood um, her saying that, to be able to truly preserve this world and these ecosystems for the rest of the world, we need to understand the universal picture because then we can serve that space. What does my little village, how is my little village and the rain-making systems or the rain systems of my little village in Western Kenya, how does that connect to the needs of somebody in the metropolis of London, for example, um, that those two things are not, we don't see the connections often and we need to seek those connections. How am I operating in Harrisonburg in my house and able to get out? If I was sick today and I didn't wear my mask, um, how does that affect somebody who does not have proper medical care in Senegal somewhere or somewhere in Appalachia? Um, because if I step out and get on a flight, so it's those interconnections we don't think about when we think about our humanity, the environment and other humans. So to protect the environment does not mean, even though plant your tree outside your house, you really need to think about how the different systems are interconnected. How does my space affect the next space and the next space and the next space? And how does that universal space affect me? The long view, I think one of the things she said was, um, I don't even, I think I included this in the book where she talks about how stupid it is for humans who do not even understand how the world functions to destroy it because we would not know where to start if we needed to rebuild it that it would have behooved us to understand how the environment and the world worked and how destroying it worked, because if we need to re-engineer it, we would need that knowledge. And so for her to understand the environment completely, we can't just focus on the now. We've got to think about where it came from, what has happened through that time, and what could happen in the future. So think about it across the expanse of time and space as well. But that means nothing if you don't imagine or consider the small or the local, where you live, where you are. Um, if you don't think about that local space and protect it, that's the third angle to this, then there is no way to protect the other that is outside of your local. Um, now, reading all her work, you get to understand that the local, though, could mean many things. The local could be my compound at home, but it could also be Harrisonburg in relation to Virginia, but it could also be Virginia in relation to the United States of America, but it could also be the United States of America in relation to the globe. And so those three dimensions are actually could all be one thing at the same time, and they could all be one individual thing that's a part of the next at the same time. So that's, and that's the complexity of how the way Wangari Madai's folk worked and you'd have to read all the things she's done and then connect them, connect them and suddenly this amazing networks of thought begin to emerge. And um, I, hope that, um, I hope that helps uh, explain that. And when, when we take a pause, I'll expand on, on that if you let me uh, in a different angle. The, the humane bit of it is where the radical humanity is where one grandmother humanizes the planet. And he channel and she channels other people when she says that the human being is not an individual. Thus you understand the universe. So that the human being, the earth is one, is one organism. The earth is one organism, and the human being is just a small part of that organism. That's the true nature of the human humanness 
is inextricably connected to the rest of the body, which is the earth, performing accurately, which is why she says, if we degrade the environment, we degrade ourselves. And in so doing, one of the beautiful things I love it is when um, she locates the, womb, the human being at the top of um, the pyramid as, you know, you have the most power, but you're also the most vulnerable. And I have to find this quote and read it for you because nobody can say it better than she does. Um, there it is. She says, it is a sobering thought that if the human species were to become extinct, no, spe no species I know of would die out because we were not there to sustain them. Yet, if some of them became extinct, human beings would also die. That should encourage us to have respect for the other forms of life and indeed for all of creation, we should demonstrate our gratitude for the way they sustain us. And so when you think about that quote, you understand the significance of the universal understanding of the environment and the long view understanding of the environment and the fact that our own humanity and our own lives are, would be, are heavily impacted by those spaces because they create us and they make us how, you know, you, you get what I'm saying, right? It's just so fascinating the way her mind worked. <laughs> you know? um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how Mathai saw the link between colonialism, racism, and capital and capitalism all all perpetuated mostly by the global North and how the exploitation of Kenya and the broader global South forced Africans to lose the connection to the environment, their lands, indigenous knowledge, agency, and the capacity to thrive. Yeah. You capture, you capture so well, the way you just said that, how, um, you know, she would ask is the missing link in sustainable development really just culture and letting people live within their cultures. Uh, but, um, she did say that there was enough blame to go around that, um, you know, the African leaders and citizens had some responsibility as well. Uh, but the beginnings of this degradation, yes, you're right, she says, begins with this, you know, what some call the darker side of modernity um, that necessitated colonialism and enslavement and other things. Um, so Wangari Mathai remembers her childhood, and her childhood was... Good. She spoke about it really nostalgically all the time about stabilized seasons and environments that provided food and women and men who both could just tap into the environment for survival and balanced ecosystems that made sure food was available all year round. And so environments, physical, abstract, emotional, in all ways, that sort of sustained the social, economic, physical, spiritual, uh, health and security of the communities. Um, and when things started breaking down and she came back from, um, well, when she got her PhD and all the other things and she started working with grassroots women, everything they asked for was, we don't have food for our kids. We don't have firewood. We don't have, um, rain is not so good. And when it comes, it erodes, the systems that it, the soil erosion. And so we just, and it became very clear to her that what people were describing were, were environments that were failing to sustain them. Um, they were not describing problems that they had on a daily. Yes, they were, but really at the core of it were environments that couldn't sustain them, that couldn't sustain their dreams, their emotional health. You know, green spaces were being broken down and cut down to pieces and people were putting up high rises. And so there was just a disconnect between the environment and the people, which had always been there. And it wasn't just pre-colonially in terms of how we engage the environment, it was the fact that the connection to the environment and the people was not just a practical one, but a spiritual one. So I'll give you an example uh, with the rainmaking where in many cultures across Africa, um, I'll talk about my own and others in Kenya. Yes, we had rain groves and um, spiritual groves um, that only the rainmakers could go to and do their sacrifices and things like that. Um, but it really wasn't about the sacrifice. It was the fact that they made that for, it was science. 
They made that forest sacred. They made Mount Kenya sacred because they understood they needed the trees for the rain to come. They needed the trees for the soil to not be eroded. They needed, so when people in the West talk about this, this, um, this indigenous wisdoms and technologies, they often think there's some mumbo jumbo taboo that, that you know, oh, they went rain. No, they didn't. They just knew that if we cut that grove down, we're going to stop having rain because we need the grove. And so when you attach a sacredness to the space, people respect it and don't touch it. When you attach a sacredness to the Mugumo tree in her community or a sacredness because the Mugumo tree, uh, as she explains in some of her work, had such deep roots that it would break the water barriers that brought the water up. Or Mount Kenya forests, if you said the mountain is sacred and people can't mess with it, then the trees would be safe and the rain would come. So understanding that was something the Westerners didn't understand. So that's one thing. The other thing would be ecosystems that survive because they feed each other. If you take one thing out of balance, you could mess up everything else because they feed into each other. So that's the general background. And if all those things stayed, the spirituality stayed, the practicality stayed, the indigenous practices or wisdoms and technologies of farming stayed and seed prevention stayed, then the environment would continue to support its people. That would be expected. However, so then this is where her move started. She started to ask, this is the issue. The environment doesn't sustain the people. But what is the root cause of that? And that's what she traces it back to the scourge of colonialism and other Western interventions. And um, while she says there's enough blame to go around, she recognizes what those forces did. Those forces estranged people from the environment. They destroyed the biodiversity. They destroyed indigenous ecosystems and ways of knowing and farming, which destroyed the environment. They introduced new crops. They introduced new trees and plants that were cash crops that could not work for that environment. They alienated the people from their ancestral land and their spirituality because they took the best land for themselves. Um, so with all this, what was created was something she actually calls in, in generality, eco-racism. Um, she actually uses that word, eco-racism. And um, that despiritualized people and the environment but that was not the worst of it. The worst of it was that it introduced this, um, the way she saw it, it introduced these Eurocentric binaries. Um, and by those Eurocentric binaries, bodies and entities have hierarchies so that white is better than black. Um, man is better than animal and nature. Man is better than woman. Human is better than nature. And, and so human being better than nature can do whatever they want to do. There's an old song uh, by um, Roger Whittaker, who was a country singer, uh, Make Way for Man, that always plays in my head when I think about this, that at that point then introducing that way of thinking about the environment, humans started disrespecting the environment. The environment was depersonalized. And in that way, you started to look at the environment in terms of money. You know, trees became timber and elephants became ivory, and it goes on and on and on, and certain sacred groves became places you went to get minerals. And so the environment became monetary in value as opposed to spiritual healing, sustaining. And once you lose that, you lose the people and their humanity. Um, and... And I like the way you framed your question, which was how it separated the people. I, I try to capture that in the book uh, because it wasn't um, it wasn't a mistake. The despiritualizing of African cultures and societies was not by accident. It was a deliberate separation of the African from their environments and from their spirituality, so they would be easier to colonize. So they would lose their power and be easier to colonize, and their resources taken away from them. And that is why she does that. Um, that's why she says that. What she says is that the, the scourge of colonialism and other outside forces brought us to where we are and were the beginnings of a lot of the issues we face, even though Africans in their societies need to take some responsibility for what happened. 
I want to talk, I would love to hear from you about her approach to the rights of women. Um, because, you know, she was heavily in, involved both at the local level, um, the broader state level, and then at the global level. Um, and I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how her critical approach in thinking manifested in practice, in promoting women to participate in protest, political, and environmental action to regain their own decolonial eco-agency. Yeah. I think where you begin from is, um, is, and maybe I should begin by um, maybe explaining what I call decolonial eco-agency. Um, I was trying to find a word that I was trying to find a phrase that became active in naming this thing um, that um, that I called eco-agency. And I went back to her thinking about environments that are letting down, that are not sustaining the people and that people can tap into. And so for me, the word of eco-agency came to me as an idea and as a concept and as a word, um, as the human's capacity or ability to harness the environment as a way, um, as a path or a route to social, economic, political, um, and cultural liberation, so to speak, um, um, what you what you mentioned as empowerment and, um, and, and, and equity. And that if people had capacity to not just control, but harness and interact with the environments in empowering ways, then they might not have dependency syndrome where they need somebody else from the outside to come and save them. Specifically for Africans, if people wouldn't come in, for African societies, if people wouldn't come in and raid and ravage and steal from their environments, whether it is um, the um, my minerals or it is the trees or it is the cash crops that are sold out in, in in export at really 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 dehumanizing prices and um other and you know if people would just let the communities that are african have control over and interact with their environments the way they would then they would have what i call eco agency and that eco agency can then be parlayed into political and social and economic and other forms of power and liberation so that's where the concept of eco agency came from um, and decolonial eco agency came from um, when i was writing the book um, wangara mathai refused to privilege to fast define herself as a woman before she defined herself as human and often refused to define other women theirs. Uh, she's, she said at some point um, in an interview, she said, I, I had never thought about myself as an African woman. I had never thought about myself as a woman. For me, the limit was my capacity and my capability. So she actually puts that out there. And when people continuously try to call out her womanhood or her womanness, uh, um, she refuses to. There's one instance where an MP threatens to circumcise her uh, because as a woman, she had forgotten her place and needed mm. to, <laughs> to. This quote I have to read. Um, 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 and because obviously he was talking to, if he was really being derogatory thinking about if you think you are a man, then why don't you come over here and I'll circumcise you because you don't want to behave like a woman. Um, obviously, <laughs> she laughed at that and uh, her response was, this one I can't, I've got to say it in her words because I have it memorized <laughs> in my head. She said, I am sick and tired of men who are so incompetent that every time they feel the heat because a woman, because women are challenging them, they have to check their genitalia to reassure themselves. <laughs> I'm not interested in that part of the anatomy. The issues we're dealing with um, require um, the use of what's above the neck. And if you don't have anything there, leave me alone. And, and, and so this was where she came from in that formatting of saying, 
I will focus on parts of the body that show no difference between men and women. I will focus on women as humans, first and foremost. And again, it goes back to humanity. Utu and Ubuntu means you see people first as equal humans. And so Mutu, like I said in Swahili, is person. Mwanamuke is woman. Utu is humanity, personhood. Uke is womanhood, femininity. And um, I use those words in the book because I, I couldn't capture those concepts in um, in English. And so I went with the Swahili words. Um, and her argument is that if you see women, going back to that binary definition of Eurocentric view of men are better than women, human is better than nature, uh, if you see women as women before you see their humanity, then it's much easier to sort of start to treat them as the other, not give them equal control of environments, not give them equal control of resources, not give them... So if you see them as equal humans first, then you must treat them as equal humans and allow them to participate in everything as equal humans. Now, if you want to honor their womanhood, that's great as well because there are great things to honor about womanhood. Um, but if you see them as human first then it's much harder to oppress them. Um, and in indigenous societies, that seeing women as human is what allowed them so much control of what the environment had to give. And that is what allowed them to harness the environmental products and um, in some spaces connect their, their, their that's too complicated. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it'd be, it's easier to explain person. But to say that in spaces where the humanity was seen first and equal to everybody else in society, then you would respect them and give them equal access to resources, which then gives them equal access to political power and other forms of agency and security. In the same way, if you listen to, um, I'm teaching a class right now, um, African oral literature, and I was just explaining this to my students yesterday, that when we start to explore the stories, the folk tales, you will realize how uh, often the solution comes from the tree or the little bird or the blade of grass gives you the answer or the solution to the problem you're dealing with. Or it's a little ant, and it's not always the human being or the man that has the answer. So this respect for humanity that, will, that she said should be expressed to all humans equally and not to men over women or women over men, um, was the same way Africans treated not just humans, but the environment as well. That they didn't see certain entities in nature as higher as others. And if you see womanhood first over humanity and humanness, then it's much easier to other the woman. Hmm. Ah. <laughs> I just... <laughs> One of the things that you write about and really resonated with me. Um, you, you quote her in the book saying you need to take action. Um, it wasn't just mm -hmm. enough to understand the root causes of the current situation, right? So a scholar might think about studying the root causes, but she goes further um, yeah. by not only being an activist herself, but also understanding that you have to give people something to do. Um, and, yeah. and especially women. Um, and you, you write about this in the book that planting trees was a quote symbol of hope. Um, and it was also important because it was something that wasn't complicated. It was something that was tangible. Um, and this really resonates with me and in, in sort of our, our current situation and how we think about, um, trying to strengthen democracy and increase civic and political participation. Um, uh, so you write it, it was not a complicated thing. They could, by their own actions, improve the quality of their lives. I wonder if you can speak to the power of acts of resistance that are embedded in our everyday lives as a means for political, economic, and societal transformation. Yes, you uh, you capture that well, and thank you, because I forgot to, to, to call her this when I started. Thank you for bringing us back to the idea that the entire book is really about situating her as a scholar activist. 
Um, and, um, and she had both worlds, uh, which was in some ways a privilege that she was able to be this amazing scholar and this amazing activist and bring those two worlds together. Um, you know, people talk about bring down the patriarchy a lot. Um, and, um, um, and, 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 you know, acts of day-to-day acts of resistance, which were very much a part of African cultures, that people were not going out on marches every day. Yes, they did do that. Women were not doing that every day, but yes, there were moments they did that. But woven into the natures of African cultures were forms of day-to-day protest that women could employ. Um, and when you talk about bringing down the patriarchy, when people talk about it, um, bringing down the patriarchy, something like true plant, tree planting or day-to-day resistances that uh, might go unnoticed are ways of disrupting or circumventing the patriarchy. So you're not even bringing it down. You just, you're just sort of going like, yeah, I'm not even paying attention to you. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to privilege you. Get out of my way. I've got stuff to do. And, and I think that's how she imagined this because she says uh, way back, I think it's, I think it, I, I, if I remember it was Habitat One, where she came back talking, she was talking about her in her presentation where she actually absolutely says, because of patriarchy and the way the world is structured today, women are now the most negatively impacted by environmental degradation. Um, In fact, she goes further to say in one of her speeches that destroying the environment and environmental resources is a direct attack on women's rights, Um, which again again brings us back to eco-agency that then then, um, the restoration of women's rights must be eco-directed. They cannot, those two things, womanist, and environmental activist interests or issues cannot be separated. That for proper, proper, and it might not be greening environment, it just might be, it, it is just control of environment at some point by women or, women or resources uh, has to be present in all women's rights or women's liberation um, liberation. Um, uh, plans. And so even in defining the Green Belt movement, she was very clear in stating that um, the tree planting is just the entry point. It's not the end. It's the entry point. And once we get into tree planting, then we start to talk about civil rights and we start to talk about um, other political rights, education for women, advocacy, because Green Belt movement didn't work, just didn't just plant trees. Uh, they did all that. And so because Africanist women's empowerment spaces were always eco-friendly, her argument is that we must resort to that or we must return to that to give women true power. And so trees become not just a symbol of hope, but if the, the part of her book where she talks about um, the story is that when she started the Green Belt Movement, the foresters wanted to give her tree seedlings because they had so many they never imagined that the women could take up the seedlings in a heartbeat and so when she decided well we're not going to need you we're going to teach the women to do it the way they did in indigenous african societies which is keep your own seeds go to the tree plant your own seeds do what you do and then create your own seedlings and the foresters in kenya said women can't do that they don't have foresters degrees (laughs) <laughs> they need, and that's why she has a chapter in her book called Foresters Without Diplomas. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, they can. <laughs> they can. They can go ahead and create their own seeds and plant. And so for her, it, it wasn't, it's, it's for, in conceptualizing this, I thought about not just the fact that they had that power to circumvent the patriarchy and the systems, to do it in a day to day space without having to leave it, but also that no matter what environment women were in in the world, as long as they had some access to the environment and some space, they could localize that. It didn't need to be reproduced in every new space so that a woman in South Asia would focus on the crops of South Asia and the trees of South Asia in doing her own resistance and planting to supply for herself and her community and not need somebody else from outside. A woman um, in Mexico could do the same thing. A woman in a village in some Eastern Europe village could do that, that it was accessible to all women. And um, attached to this is when she started fighting Monsanto. Hmm. 
and, and saying the problem with what's happening with that is that the power to produce seeds like these foresters were doing is now being given to an organization yeah. globally. And so in that, you're taking away even the power to control their own subsistence on a day-to-day basis and so further disempowering them. So um, day-to-day day-to-day um, uh, resistances, small resistances, typically end up being more impactful than the larger ones that are, you know, let's right. march on Washington. Those are good too. Those are good too. But imagine women across the world having the capacity to have that tiny little thing they do in their home that changes their immediate environment, which then collectively goes global and universal. Again, going back to the idea of the universal view. Uh, yeah, Wangaramadai was just brilliant. <laughs> so in your book, you you also address how indigenous modes of governance and democratic practices differ from those that have been produced under the influence, under influences, including slavery, colonialism, the cold war, cultural, cultural destruction and religion, um, which Mathai called, uh, said, said could produce dangerous, reactive, rebellious, or passive citizenship. I wonder um, if you can talk about her alternative conception of Utu-based, Utu-informed citizenship and, you know, how that articulates an alternative democratic practice and solution. Uh, as you as, as I finish saying the last thing, I hope I don't forget the idea that just came to me, which I will probably do uh, on citizenship. But I forgot to say in the last, I, I thought about it as soon as I finished talking about in the last question about how if people recognize how environment has been used as a tool to yeah. hurt other people, uh, you know, politically, economically, uh, I mean, we can talk about right. Flint today. We can talk about the the pipeline, um, the oil pipelines, we can talk about all that, that if we recognize the political power and and value and economic cultural value of environments, then it's easy for us to recognize their power as tools of protest, their, the control of the environment as a space where we can take back our agency. But moving on to your question about citizenships. Um, so something I haven't thought about in a while, and as you asked that, because uh, you asked it so differently than the way I think the question was written, or maybe I just don't remember the question you wrote down earlier. <laughs> I, um, thinking about citizenship, um, I think perhaps that the space to start would be def- the definition of citizenships, because Mathai suggested that the problem was... Um, the problem was really in asking how people can be citizens of certain nations, but rather asking, but rather focusing on what it meant to be a, a member of community. Because then you could see yourself as being a member of different communities and none eroding the other so that you could be a member of the Luya Nation, that would be my, 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 my community, my ethnic group. I could be a member of the Luya Nation and contribute to that as that and not erode that and at the same time be a member of the Kenyan nation and then be a nation, a member of the, the African nation and the global nation, not those nations, but Luya community, Kenyan community, African community, global community, and not think that one takes away from the other and contribute to that. And that's the space one begins to define um, citizenships that don't erase other citizenships, citizenships that make us constantly active in everything we do uh, as as um, as engaged, radically Utu-informed citizens, uh, that we need to focus on defining humans as members of communities and none being more important than the other. Um, so that would be one place to start. Um, now, having defined those citizenship, and her definition of citizenship is so complex, I can't even get into it right now, and leadership. So that's a really basic, just the starting point, introductory point. Um, and then put that together with her definition of the idea of democratic spaces. She didn't really like the word democracy. She liked the word democracy. Uh, However, she thought the word democracy distracted us from thinking actively or radically. And so she preferred using the word democratic spaces. 
And if you create democratic spaces, then citizens can perform as democratic citizens within democratic spaces. And that means that citizenships are actively recreating democratic spaces. Um, so she offered the imagery of the three-legged African stool, as she calls it. It's in almost every culture. There's one I'm looking at in my house right now, actually, as I'm talking to you. <laughs> There's actually one physically in my house right now that I'm looking at. That was a gift from my mother a long time ago um, that I'm looking at that's really beautifully beaded and all that. Um, that the, the beauty of that stool is that it was built from one block of wood in most cultures, you would, they would cut the tree trunk or whatever part of the tree, and then they just dig out the different spaces. And I'm sure you've seen it. It's a three-legged stool. And the seat section dips in a little where you sit. And how Madai imagined it, um, uh, and there's an installation at the Wangari Madai Institute for Peace and Environmental Studies in Nairobi that is actually a, a, a replica built, a, a, a representation of that mm. three-legged stool. How she imagined it is that the three-legged stool needed, uh, it, it was never broken because it was built out of one slab of wood, one block of wood. So you didn't join the legs of the stool from different parts. No, you dug out the block of wood and then ended up with a stool with a sitting area and three legs. You carved it into that. So she imagined the three legs as democratic spaces was one leg, just and sustainable and accountable governance and administration of natural resources was the other leg. And the third leg was the cultures of peace. With those three together, holding up in conversation with each other and holding up the seat of the stool where you sit, that seat of the stool is what she imagined as the space where um, good governance would thrive good citizenships would thrive, good leaderships would thrive, and the actual democratic space would be realized, the active democratic space with active citizenships, active leaderships, which I call Utu-based, would thrive. So that was her imagining. Now, she did question whether the missing link in proper citizenship and leadership was culture. And she does not just leave us imagining, how do we do this today? She actually gives us a model out of her own people, which then responds to your question, how does that compare to African ways of governing and leadership and citizenship? Um, in an Utu society, which most African societies were, on a society that lives by Utu, you as a leader are responsible to every other citizen and you as a citizen are responsible to every other leader. So that's the beginning of space. So that's the beginning of space. You can never mess up the system if you feel that you're responsible to everybody else and to the world. You, ha you have a personal responsibility to that space of good citizenship, leadership and democracy because it affirms your own humanity. If you lose that respect for that, you lose your humanity. So that's one. So when you think about Ituika, the, the Koyo system that she prefers that we sort of copy, it is a system of leadership that is generational, which was in many African cultures, you had a generation who defined as leaders. So in that way, every generation got their shot to lead and contribute to the world. So when my parents' generation would have been the leaders as a generation, apprenticing the next generation of citizens and leaders, that meant that no matter what, when their term limit came and they had to pass over leadership to the next generation, they didn't have a choice. They had to let go because if they didn't, they had failed at leadership. So these systems of governance, what they did is they became de facto term limits to leadership. So people were not trying to hold on to leadership, control leadership, own leadership, because their leadership would be judged in how they apprentice the next generation coming through. Meaning that if the next generation coming after you failed at leadership, then you failed because it was your job to apprentice them into being good humans, good citizens, good leaders. Um, and so that meant that it was harder for people to be corrupt, for people to, tra to poorly trained 
cohorts that came after them to for people to hold on to power for people to and so the democratic space kept moving and was constantly active and that was only possible because of utu and recognition that i am because we are or i have a responsibility to my community to my environment to everything else and that took care of the issue of the pathology of power and corruption and all the other things because you didn't lead alone you led with a with with a, with a generation with, with um, an entire generation of people as a cohort and you had the responsibility of training the next lot to come in and you had responsibility to everybody else in the society to make sure society was functioning well so that's how she says we could go back into african forms of leadership to get our answers to the challenges of democracy today to the challenges of corruption to challenges of discrimination challenges of justice social justice and equity that if we went back to african 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 societies and how they conceptualized and practiced leadership and citizenship we might find our answers to issues we're facing today Essie Mahanja, we've been talking about your new book, Radical Utu, Critical Ideas and Ideals of Wangari Muta Mathai. Uh, we ask one final question mm-hmm. of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Who? Uh, and perhaps I, and perhaps I, I should actually, ask, what would you do to strengthen democratic practices? <laughs> Uh, democratic spaces and practices yes absolutely Maybe that is the better question <laughs> yes um i would um i would try to connect to my humanity and yours kara I would try to connect to my humanity and yours as a citizen of my little neighborhood, you know, my homeowners association. I would try to reconnect to my radical Utu uh, as a member of JMU Nation. I would try to connect to my radical Utu as a member of Harrisonburg Nation, Virginia Nation, uh, the USA, and obviously global spaces. Now, if I was sitting as a Kenyan, which I am right now as well, I would do that because if I honor my citizenships in all those spaces from a humane space, from from a humane space, from a space of Utu, then not only do I defend everybody and everything that that, that everybody... do, do, do I defend everybody else's rights? But I also must question my responsibility as a human uh, and what I need to do on a daily basis. So it's not it's not a space you arrive at, like democracy have arrived, no. Democratic spaces demands that I have to consider sustainable development, sustainable political peace, sustainable cultures of peace, and all these things sustainable, not just for me, but for everything, for everyone else. Then we might be speaking about a true democracy, but, uh, then I might not be sitting at home on, on election day thinking it doesn't affect me. Then I might not be seeing somebody mishandled by the, um, by the um, governmental systems and their rights taken away and being quiet and thinking, oh, that does not affect me uh, because I am because we are means that affects me. And so when they came for, I like that meme, they came for the so-and-so and you did nothing. And they came for so-and-so and you did nothing. Now they've come for you and there's nobody left to help you. And, and, and I think for me that really captures the idea of democratic spaces and humanity and Utu and caring for people beyond yourself. And radical Utu allows us access to that form of caring about our world, which we don't have to work at democracy and democratic spaces if we live that way. It will just be a function of, of or as a result of how we live on a day-to-day basis and what we require of ourselves. I apologize, that was pretty muddled up, but I was coming up with the answer as I was answering it. Thank you so much for spending the time having this conversation and for sharing your scholarship, your intellectual labor, um, and your emotional labor. Oh, it's a privilege to get to be talking to you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. 
Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Caitlin Waltmeyer, a senior media arts and design major. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about us at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.